yellow and welcome back to the horror sanctum i'm jay with john kellen and tj and yes you are right i did say yellow but why did you say yellow jay why and well i'll tell you it's a segue into uh this week's episode uh yellow in italian is giallo and we are going to talk about our first giallo film uh of this podcast existence um and of course, I'm talking about Dario Argento's directorial debut, 1970s, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Um, synopsis in American Writers in Rome, he attempts to unmask a serial killer after he witnesses an attempted murder. Uh, and now the killer seems to be hunting him and his girlfriend. Uh, this was one of John's picks. So, John, we're going to start off with you. Yeah, so I didn't see this movie until the first Dario Argento film I saw was probably Suspiria, like a lot of people. Um, I found this movie around 2020, bought it, uh, really loved it the first time. I uh, just thought it was incredible. And then this second time watching it, I have like a similar perspective, but just a little more evened out, I think, over time. Um, it is Dario's first film. It's a giallo thriller. It's a lot less um, extreme. It's a lot less gory, a lot less fantastical than his later films in the 80s. So this one's definitely more Hitchcock. This movie is really, this movie is kind of like if Alfred Hitchcock just kept directing and went to Italy in 1970 and made a, another movie. That's really what this is. It's very similar, very in line with Hitchcock. Um relies a lot on that whodunit nature. It's uh, very much about suspense and slow burn. And it's a lot different than what the slasher and even the giallo genre would become later. And I think for a lot of people, it's probably not their cup of tea just because it is so slow burn. It's a really, it's not a long movie, but there's the story is, takes a while to get into. It's a slow burn. It's a whodunit. There's not, there is some violence, but there's not, it doesn't have that same attraction and that appeal that a lot of slashers and a lot of typical horror films would have. So it's kind of one of those things to where I can see a lot of people being 50-50 on it. Um, and I think that for me, that's one of the things that I, I saw second time around was this is a film that you definitely have to see it for what it is, but you have to be in a mindset and a mood to watch it, much like Theater of Blood that we discussed before. It's very late 60s, early 70s, um, has that feel. So, it, it, you know, it's it can be definitely an acquired taste and, you know, not something that I would say would be an easy watch like every day. Not something that you can get into. Like, I feel like every year you could get into Suspiria, you could get into Tenebrae, you could get into Phenomena. But I feel like this movie, maybe not every year, right? This is more just every now and then. Um I think this movie overall probably is in his top three or four. Uh, it's not as I would definitely not put it above Tenebrae or Deep Red, but I would say this and Suspiria, even though they're different films, you know, they're similar to me in a ranking like they kind of hit neck and neck with being good, but having their imperfections here and there. Um, the biggest thing for this is that for me is the cinematography. This is a beautiful movie. Um, I think that the shots and everything, the way they set up this film is great. Uh, the opening scene where the main character, Sam, stumbles upon the 
kind of like the apartment and there's the big glass middle section and he's witnessing the attack on the girl that's beautiful the way they shoot that the way they set that up it's just a really pretty scene um and a lot of this is kind of redone in other movies um the plot and the sort of the character beats that they do in this movie they do this in later argento films especially deep red so a lot of what happens in this movie you can definitely see in deep red later there's a lot of similar you know, the whole fish out of water with a foreigner getting caught up in a mystery, witnessing an attack or a murder, trying to solve it, becoming obsessed with solving it, and therefore risking their own life and their friends or girlfriend in the process. Um, but a lot of this movie, it is considered to be kind of a milestone for Jalos. Um, it's, I don't know if it's, it's definitely not the first. Mario Baba definitely did movies before this but i feel like this is the one that people sort of discuss as being the sort of kickstarter to the jello franchise and what people would know it to be even though later on it is like like i was saying it evolved so much the jello went from being hitchcock to being a little more friday the 13th eventually so it was kind of an evolution over time and um a lot of the things in the film that kind of are quirky are pretty big staples of Argento films, like the, for instance, the, the guy who's the artist and eats his own cats. That's an example of Argento throwing in wacky humor for random reasons. Um, the pimp that's in prison that keeps saying so long, and he's just everything he says so long. And then he thinks he's needing to leave. And he's like, no, I have a, I stutter. I'm just saying that that's, that's typical Argento. Uh, he does that every movie. There's always like a little hint of that. Kind of how Brian De Palma is. Brian De Palma does that in his movies. They're very serious. They're very thrillers. But then he throws in these wacky wacky humor pieces to kind of lighten the mood, ease the tension a bit. Um, some random things about the movie, though, that is kind of interesting. The guy who is in the uh, the yellow jacket, the boxing club jacket, the hitman that's shooting at Sam and his girlfriend, and they run into the club. Well, he runs into the club, and then the guy goes after him. That is actually Barlow from Salem's Lot. So probably eight, maybe nine years before Salem's Lot. But that's probably the movie that most people recognize him from. Um, the script to this movie was written in apparently five days. I didn't know that pretty short. Um, and the, uh, there is an interesting fact about the, uh, the camera. So at the end, when there is the spoiler, when there's a struggle with the husband in the apartment complex, Sam and the cops go up, he's hanging off the ledge. He falls. The way they achieved that is they actually took the camera and dropped it down the sidewalk and broke it. They just broke the camera and took the footage out and kept it. So that was, I wow. think that. yeah, it was very odd, very unique way of doing it. Um, but yeah, it's, I think it's a really uh, unique film. I think it really started the genre in a great way in the Jalo genre. I just, my biggest criticism of this movie, I would say, is it's just one of those things to where because it's in the late 60s, early 70s, it's older, it's um, 
you have to be in the mood to watch it. It doesn't really hold up as well as some of other the other Argento films. And I feel like the ending is just way too anticlimactic. They do the twist where you find out that the wife is actually the crazy one and the husband was like covering up for her. But it really ends in such a way that you don't really get a lot of like resolution and that the protagonist die or the antagonist dies or there's a struggle, right? Unfortunately, just kind of she's crazy. She confronts Sam. She traps him. The police come. They arrest her. That's a little bit lackluster, in my opinion, compared to the other Argento films. So that's kind of where it's um, unfortunately it takes a little bit of a dive for me. But yeah, I mean, I'm definitely curious to see what you guys think. And just based on what we were talking about earlier, Kellen, I've got to start with you. I'm curious. Um, oh, boy. <laughs> no, no, I, I didn't hate this film at all. I mean, it, it's it's an enjoyable watch. I, I enjoy the kind of whodunit stories. The misdirection in this movie is really good. Um, even the scene where he throws the cigarette pack to the husband because the, the writer kind of suspects him. Mm-hmm. And they make the comment earlier, you know, about the glove, the wear on the glove shows that it was a left-handed man. He throws the cigarette. The guy catches him with his left hand. So, you know, they're kind of trying, which, that, you know, it's super obvious that it's not him because it's so obvious they're trying to push it towards him. Um, but, you know, they keep they keep coming back to the thing. You know, he's, I, I saw, but I didn't, I can't, I can't put my finger on it, but there's something I'm missing. I don't know what it is. I can't place what I'm missing. And then the reveal at the end where it's her holding the knife, not the quote-unquote assailant. And that's what he was missing. He was he could see it in his head, but he couldn't figure out what he couldn't connect. So the reveal to me was was satisfying. I do agree it was kind of anticlimactic the way it ended. Yeah. Um, but <clears throat> it 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 kind of fits into the the so I'm I'm actually reading Quentin Tarantino's cinema speculation right now. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about this style of movie. So in the you know late 50s, early 60s, westerns, cowboy movies, that was the big thing. There was a shift in the end of the 60s towards these cop drama sh- movies. And that became the big thing through this throughout the end of the 60s, the 70s, starting with Steve McQueen's Bullet in 68. Um, which, if you can tell me the actual plot to that movie, I'll give you $20. Because <laughs> right. it's, it's one of those movies, it's kind of like The Big Lebowski. It's not so much about the plot, it's about Steve McQueen's Bullet character it's about you know what he's doing in the film not as much about the plot it's about the characters um and then on into 71 with the french connection and dirty harry and then a little later uh, chinatown with jack nicholson in 74 so the the whodunit cop drama killer um was huge so this fits right into that time frame it makes sense that you know he would that would be his first movie because studios were putting money into these cop dramas um the interesting twist is that the main character is not a cop. <laughs> He's just a writer who becomes obsessed with trying to figure out who this murderer is. Mm-hmm. So as far as the movie's concerned, I enjoyed the movie. I actually didn't feel like it was too long because I enjoyed the dialogue. I enjoyed the characters, even though I recognized exactly zero mm-hmm. actors in this film. <laughs> I, I enjoyed the movie. I, I, I like, I like these types of movies. Mm-hmm. My problem is, Somewhere around in the late 60s, early 70s. I don't know if it's if it was to create a, a sense of suspense without music. 
you know, because we, like we talked about with um, the horror of Dracula, a lot of that movie is built on the soundtrack, built on the music. The, the suspense is built through the orchestra that, mm-hmm. that progresses that movie. In these movies, they almost pull the music completely away and focus so much on the sounds of the actors, the breathing, the, the whimpering, the, the, the ending with the woman trying, I know it's trying to be creepy, but her laugh went straight up my back. I could not focus on anything in that scene because it was the most annoying thing ever. (laughs) These movies are, if you love ASMR, these movies are wonderful for that. I can't stand ASMR. <laughs> I hate having somebody whisper in my ear. And that's what all of this sounds like. <laughs> that's what all of this sounds like to me. And it, it drives me crazy in these films because, like I said, the, the best movies, if you think through the history of cinema, the best movies also typically have the best soundtrack. The, the music is almost another character in the film. And in these these movies in the 70s, they took that away. And like I said, I don't know if it was they were trying to make you feel more in the scene, if they were trying to build the suspense by making it seem more intense by you're you're no longer hearing anything. You're you're just hearing what's going on in the room. But it's it's awful. I hate it so so much. And it pulls me out of these films, you know, that and I think. Yeah, and that may be part of the reason that some of these aren't as well regarded, you know, as as Bullet, you know, Dirty Harry, some of the, the quote unquote classic of this genre of the whodunit cop thrillers. Um, and I don't and I don't know why they did. They, that was their decision. But that that's the only thing that I can really say as far as, you know, the things John said, I, I agree with the anticlimactic ending ending. But. I want to be immersed in a movie and it pulls me out when that stuff starts happening. And it just, like I said, it crawls up my back and it just, it makes me uncomfortable and I just can't get into the movie anymore. So, you know, that being said, it's a, it's a good movie. It's, it's a good story. It's a good, it's a, it's a fun time. It didn't feel as long, you know, as maybe for other people that don't enjoy, you know, the, the intimacy of some dialogue moments, but yeah, I actually, I actually did enjoy the movie aside from, the ASI torture that, <laughs> that was throughout the film. So TJ, you're a classic movie guy. Yes. I actually watched this movie like 20 years ago and used to have like the, the single disc DVD. And I think I had a two disc special edition. I currently own the, uh, arrow Blu-ray, which is a great disc and, uh, highly recommended. Uh, I rewatched it. A few days back, uh, ju- just before I went out of power for like three days. So I just got it in, <laughs> thankfully. Um, but I-, I think, you know, everything John said's uh, pretty on point. Uh, I do think this is one of Argento's best. It was his directorial debut. Argento actually never wanted to be um, a director. He actually got a start in, in screenwriting and actually has a story credit on Once Upon a Time in the West, uh, which was a early Italian spaghetti Western with Charles Bronson. Uh, one of the more epic ones. I, I put that movie on on par with um, like uh, the, the Man With No Name trilogy and, and specifically The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, which is the more epic length one. 
Um, and that's that's really how he was making his living for a number of years was screenwriting and story development. Uh, his dad was involved in the in the film Italian film industry, so he kind of got grandfathered in into it. Uh, but never saw himself as a director. In fact, I believe he tried to get somebody else to direct this film that he wrote um, before I think financing kind of fell through and he realized that the, the best way to keep it on the cheap and still make it was just to direct it himself. So uh, without financing falling through, we might not have uh, the classics of the 70s and 80s genre films of Argento. So... That's an interesting point. Uh, Jay kind of alluded to it earlier. Uh, this is uh, this genre of film that kind of developed with Mario Bava. Uh, a lot of people credit uh, there, there's, as with any first in any genre, a, a lot of there's debate, but I would say the majority of people kind of land on, as well as I, uh, Mario Bava's Kill Baby Kill um as as being one of the first um giallo films is what these are are called uh, which is basically a it's like a combination of like a, it's it's like a pre-slasher mixed with a detective pulpy crime thriller um all these things usually have women uh, as as the femme fatale kind of roles um uh, there's always twists and turns involved in the plots. And the reason they were called Giallo is because they're all based typically on books uh, that would be the pulpy crime fiction novels of the 50s and really the era before when these movies come out. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were all yellow covers, so they'd get your attention because they'd sell them in the airports and in the newsstands. And they'd even have little one-sheet um, printouts of all the different yellow covers of the things that are out that get people's attention. It was a marketing ploy, kind of like the reason taxi cabs are yellow, mm -hmm. uh, uh, is to get your attention and say, "Hey, this is this is what's out now." But but ever since Jay opened with the with the yellow comment, it's really got me thinking. There's a missed opportunity out there for a parody of the Coldplay song, for it was all giallo. <laughs> <laughs> That's waiting to happen. If it hadn't happened yet, it's a missed opportunity. That's where we come in. Stuff like right, that. Right, right. We got we to make that happen, Jay. <laughs> um, but I do like this film. But like John said, it's not one I revisit super often, even though I think it's definitively, it's probably a top five Argento film, if not a top three. Uh, that's debatable, depending on if you like more of his later supernatural stuff or more of his earlier giallo stuff. But in terms of the cinematography, the direction, everything, to be his first film out of the gate, you can obviously see the Hitchcock influence. I mean, just like Brian De Palma was was a student of Hitchcock, Dario Argento was basically the Italian Brian De Palma, uh, who was one degree removed from Hitchcock. Um, and you can tell a lot of that in his style of filmmaking. Everything he does in the 70s has has drips of that. Uh, and early 80s, like with Tenebrae uh, and some of his last kind of bridging the gap of Giallo into more supernatural horror. Um, I do think I like overall as a film, I think Deep Red and Tenebrae are better Giallos. 
Um, but there is a certain charm to this film. I think the cinematography is actually better in this film than in those films overall. Um, of, so this this film was based on a 1958 novel called The Screaming Mimi, which had actually been adapted twice um, in the late 50s and early 60s. In 1958, it actually was adapted as The Screaming Mimi. I believe it was a uh, it was a European film. I don't know if it was Italian or British. Um, but that actually a uh, little little bit of trivia had the first uh, shower uh, knife attack scene ever filmed two years before Psycho, but it was an outdoor shower at a beach where a psycho was coming up on a on a woman. So that's what that film is kind of uh, infamous now for. Is by all accounts, I've never seen it, but by all accounts, it's pretty pulpy, um, even more so than this film. So not remarkable. Uh, most of the Giallo films of Argento and and Fulci and Bava take a lot of liberties with with the novels that they're kind of based on. Uh, by all accounts, the '58 movie was a lot closer to the plot of, of the book than, than this is. It's it's more of a starting point uh, for the films. Um, and something that Argento probably does more than any of the other famous Giallo directors is he really um, makes the, the women characters the stronger, uh, even if they're not the one that you, they're not, they're usually not the one that you see as the audience kind of their perspective through the most of the movie is usually a male protagonist, but usually the most interesting characters are the women. And specifically something that Argento does is he goes out of his way to make the, particularly the male protagonist kind of useless and impotent and just not very helpful. They usually bumble their way through the films. And then by the end, you know, they hadn't figured it out until it's right in front of them. And they learn the twist when we do, because we're kind of seeing through their perspective. So they're never ahead of the plot because we're never supposed to be ahead of the plot. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so the antagonists are always five steps ahead, just, just by virtue of the way that, that the plot is kind of structured. Uh, in this film in particular, the main guy, like they really hammer it hard because they keep going to that first opening scene where he's just caught in between the glass. He's not strong enough to break the glass <laughs> and he, he kind of, you know, he could have got through if he hadn't have just stuck there, not knowing what to do and then got locked in the glass. Mm -hmm. So, and then he just has to watch while this woman's, you know. By, by all accounts, we think it's bleeding to death. And uh, and then they really milk that scene with, with the people coming by and him, him trying to knock and tell them what's going on, but they can't really hear him. Then the cops come. And then eventually he just kind of slumps down and realizes, well, there's nothing I can do here. So I'm just hanging out here on the floor until y'all can save me and save this lady. And then at the end, when it is revealed that, that the lady was actually the one killing everybody, um, then she, she throws a big giant wall on top of him and 
is just taunting him, you know, mm-hmm. like he's totally useless there at the end. I mean, if, if he's not saved, then, you know, he's, he's not rescuing anybody or, or saving the day. And that's kind of a thing that Argento really plays with is, is flipping that strong male prota- protagonist. Did he see his girlfriend in the floor at any point? Because no, he was asking where she was, and he ended up in the floor like three separate times, and at no point acknowledged that she ex- existed. Yeah, he never saw her. I don't. <laughs> I don't I, he couldn't have, right? Mm-mm. She was right there. I mean, he was face to face with her at one point when he fell, and then later he's like, "Oh, she's okay." Like he had no idea that she was even in the yeah. room when he was stumbling he, and falling off the floor. He gets on all fours and he kind of like looks left to right, but he's not looking under the bed. It's weird. I th- I noticed that too. I don't know why. Yeah, it's weird. but that that just further il- illustrates the total impotence and and cutting the legs out from under the male protagonist is like he's going in to you know figure it out but he's not saving anybody (laughs) hopefully you got a good detective behind you to to save the day which this is something that is different in most not only argento but most giallo films is usually the detective is very incidental or detectives they might come in at the end to kind of tie up the the loose ends and arrest or pick up the pieces of the dead bodies or whatever. But in this film, uh, since this is kind of an early giallo and, and the conventions hadn't totally been set yet where the detectives are just kind of a faceless plot device. It's very clear that, that Argento was really doing all he could to make the detective, the strongest male lead character in in the film and he actually does drive a lot of the plot a lot of what we learn of unfolding the mystery comes from the detective and and honestly some of the best the best lines and the best acting comes from the detective uh which yeah, is not I, typical yeah when he said when they did the lineup and instead of saying bring in the the perps he said bring in the perverts yeah that's <laughs> the best line like, of the movie. out loud <laughs> i have that written down in my notes like that was my favorite line of the entire film bring in that's the perverts. That, that's the best line in any argento film for my money <laughs> bring in the perverts that should be on <laughs> a t-shirt bring in the trust transvestite and like yeah. not him because with the transvestite, he, not he the doesn't perverts. count, <laughs> <laughs> which oh, was man. very forward thinking for 1970. And Argento, you know, usually has an LGBTQ or a transvestite or something in a lot of his films. Um, hmm. Well, they were all in that one. The uh, um, antique director guy was obviously gay. Oh, the yeah. woman that worked from him for him was a lesbian, <laughs> and then they had the transvestite in the lineup. So I I noticed that I didn't notice that it was a very progressive film for 1970. Yeah. And that, that was, that was always, uh, especially in all his seventies films, that was always something like in deep red. That's, that's a big (laughs) plot device too. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's something Argento's always been progressive about. Um, I don't have much else to say about this, uh, before going to ratings and stuff. So I will pass off to Jay. So I, I agree with, with you. I think this was Kellen's first Giallo film, if I'm not mistaken. That is correct. That's your wow. sure. I tried to tell him, I was like, you know, it, it, it's a formula. I, it's very similar to anime formulas. Like anime, you have things that are consistent is they have to train forever. They have to fight forever. They have to eat 
all the time and the women are over sexualized like there's a formula to anime with giallo it's the same way it's black gloves knives vibrant colors red red blood usually eye gouging which there wasn't any eye gouging in this one unfortunately thank god <laughs> which, which the black gloves in all of argento's movies are argento's hands by the way yeah, yeah. so it's top five Argento for me. I think he only has what 17 movies he's directed. And, you know, of course, Dracula 3d is number one on everybody's list. Um, <laughs> but it's definitely top five for me too. And like you, you named all Tenebrae, um, Suspiria, Deep Red, um, opera. I love opera. Um, That's my top fun. five right there with this one. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Um, this one's good. Um, it is slow, but I think considering this was his first, you know shot at it look look where we are now like he 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 kind of changed it i think he put it more on the map uh, at least for me and my life that's a name you hear all the time with giallos and giallo is not something i really watched either until the last probably 10 years i think this is the second time i watched this one um i, I don't know how rewatchable it is um just because you the first time you're like oh i can't believe that happened but second time you're like, oh yeah, I remember that happened. And it just, sometimes you can watch films over and over again and you see more, you notice things, but I don't think this is one of those films that that will happen for you. So it's like two, watch it twice in a year, watch it five years down the road, maybe. Um, it didn't really have a lot of kills. That was one thing. You notice you, you see people dying, but there's really not a lot of kills. Of course, we like to give our favorite kills so we're going to try to do that now and my kill was one that we didn't see and it's at the end um with carlo the friend so uh what's his name tony masanti comes back he thinks the friend is the killer because he's sitting there in chair with a knife and then he falls forward and he has a knife in his neck like that's probably my favorite kill just because when that happened the first time you watched the movie, you're like, I knew that motherfucker was the killer. <laughs> I knew it was him. And you're like, you're probably like, I knew it the whole time. And then he falls over you're like, Oh shit, he's not the killer. But like the first time watching that was kind of a surprise to me. And it is slow, but I think in the seventies and you thought it was anticlimactic towards the end, but in the seventies, it probably wasn't, you know, in the seventies, it blew our minds, blew their minds. Um, but yeah, um, that was my favorite kill one that we didn't see. Um, we'll go, John. What was your favorite kill of the flick? Um, that was a cool one. And th it, that one, what was funny about that one was I forgot about him sitting in that chair. And it reminded me of the end of Blue Velvet when he walks in the room and the guy in yellow is just standing there. And he's like, got the brain itch uh, something about that reminded me of blue velvet but my favorite probably was um probably the elevator kill just because um it's just kind of a cool way that shot it with him like using the razor blade and the quick cuts of him slashing um you don't see a ton but that's that's probably what i'd go for killing <clears throat> Jay mentioned the the one that I thought of. Um, so John as well, but I, I since those are kind of already picked, it, I, I, it also I thought of the girl that he kills in the bed or she kills in the bed, um, just because that was 
for the time, that's almost a precursor to where we would end up going, where horror films become more sexualized in the killings and, you know, sex becomes a big part of the horror genre. And that's kind of like the first time or the oldest movie I can think of where, you know, there's a sexual aspect to the killing. I mean, he cuts her shirt while she's in the bed or she does rips the panties off and then kills the girl, you know, off screen. Um, so, you know, the, the guy in the chair, that was probably my favorite, but I recognize the, the bed scene as, um, as being kind of like a pioneer of where horror was going to go. So between those two. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think for me, I do really like that, that tracking shot going down with the camera that, that John already talked about. I think in terms of innovation, that was really cool. But also, uh, I, I think I do also like uh, the elevator one because uh, another one of my favorite De Palma, Brian De Palma films, really crept a lot from that, specifically even with the razor blade and Dress to Kill uh, with Michael Caine and uh, the girl he used to be married to that's in all of his movies, whose name escapes me. She's in Mrs. Of- Caine. <laughs> no, no, not Michael. Okay. De- Brian De Palma. Uh, she was in Carrie. Oh, yeah, Mrs. De Palma. That one. Yeah, Mrs. De Palma. <laughs> right. It's Anne something. I don't remember her name. Um. Anyway, yeah. The, there's not a whole lot of kills in this film. Actually, yeah, my really- favorite, my favorite scene is the one they keep coming to at the beginning because it's such the centerpiece of the film and and the turning point. But that's not actually a kill. She only mm-hmm. gets maimed, and then you realize actually. The person you thought was the killer wasn't the killer and that she was the killer. And and so that's my favorite depiction of violence in the film, because I think it's cool how they can keep showing you the same thing, just a little bit different. But even though they keep showing you the same scene, you don't you don't figure it out until the the main character does, which is kind of cool. They have a lot of trust in how they filmed that to keep showing that to you at least three times by my count all throughout the film. And you still don't get ahead of it before the main character. I've I've never known anybody who's watched this that figured out the twist before it happened. And that's saying something. Liars out there. Um, Before we get to our race, one more thing is after watching it today, The uh, the pimp in prison. I I can only see uh, Steve Buscemi's character from Mr. Deeds. <laughs> That's all I see when I see that scene. That's great. Um, all right. So again, top five Argento for me. Um, I think it's Deep Red, Suspiria, Opera, Tenebrae, and then Bird. This one is probably fifth, but it's it's just the rewatchability for me is what really gives it this right i just give it a three just for that um I, I i love it i love argento but the things i use to factor into ratings i think it would just leave me with a three for this one john um i think first time it would have been higher now in hindsight i would say overall it's gonna be a four out of five i think it's a really good film um, I think the things that it, it, it doesn't have the story of the deep red has, and I think it doesn't have the shock, the intensity and the score of Tenebrae. I think it's definitely inferior to those films. So I would say four out of five. 
it's definitely my top five, but I don't know. I mean, it's 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 right there with Suspiria, maybe even below it. So yeah, and when Argento met Goblin, that was a game changer. Yeah. Too. This film's sure. like big time. All right, Kellen. Um, yeah, it's like I said, it's not a bad movie. It's it's a it's a fun watch. Like like everyone else has said, probably doesn't have a whole lot of rewatchability. It's kind of like the sixth sense. Once you know the the twist, I mean, you can maybe rewatch it to see if you notice the knife was in her hand at the beginning. Um, but you know, it's probably not a movie that I'll ever watch again unless somebody else is like, oh, do you want to watch this? <laughs> Which I doubt is going to happen. Um, so I mean, I. It's, on a five scale, I think 2.5 is a fair rating. It's not, it's not, you know, and I only say that because every single one of y'all have named three other films that he has made and I need room to grow <laughs> as we go down the Giallo journey. Um, so I think a solid, you know, 50% rating. They do, you know, they do get better. Like I've told yeah. you which one to watch. Like I, I fully expect you to. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not giving it a 2.5 because I didn't like it. I'm giving it a 2.5 because just listening to y'all i know there's going to be you know room to grow and i don't want it to be like oh this is this is a solid three and a half and then yeah. the next one's like a four and it's like, oh it's just a little better i'm, <laughs> I'm giving myself a little, little play right, i'm playing it safe yeah that's that's smart i i think it, it says a lot about argento's trajectory of his career that both myself jay and john probably have the same top five like he's a mm. guy that has a top five uh where we would rank those is probably different but between all of us. Um my hot take is I actually like Tenebrae better than than Deep Red, even though I recognize Deep Red's a better film. I rewatch Tenebrae more than probably any Argento film. Um, just cause it's campier and I like it. But uh the first time I watched this. And, and was really surprised by the reveal, I would have gave it a four out of five. But I've probably seen this film like five times now over the years, and it's not one I revisit a lot. But I, I'd probably give it a solid three and a half. Uh, it's not as good after the first watch, and 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 that speaks to the quality. I do think if the Goblin soundtrack had been on this, it's a solid four. Yeah, it changes the game completely. Yeah, for sure. Um, so that's three, 3.25. We'll call it 350. That's fair. Uh, 3.5. So, um, that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, be sure to follow us on Instagram. You can come join the church group on Facebook, subscribe to the YouTubes and subscribe to us wherever you're listening to us. Now that would be swell. Tell your friends about it. Um, you know, sharing is caring, get the word out. Um, we would appreciate that. Uh, we'll be back next week with a fun episode where we sat down and talked to Lindsey Crane. Uh, it's probably not a name you're familiar with, but you should be. Um, she was in film uh, Book of Monsters, which was great. Zombalogalypse, which was good. And uh, Troma's newest movie that actually just went to theaters last month, Eating Miss Campbell. Uh, she's been in a few more things, but those are like her big three. Uh, she's adorable. Uh, so come back for that one, especially on YouTube thank us later um but that's gonna do it for this episode uh so long i'm jay with johnny keelan and teach and until next time keep it spooky <laughs>